Buongiorno and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to be exploring again the repercussions of COVID-19 pandemic on the global community, with a particular focus on developing countries and sustainable development. This week in particular, we'll be exploring the situation in Lebanon. Since the end of last year, Lebanon has been in a state of protest sparked by a government proposal to put a tax on the much-used communications app you may be familiar with, WhatsApp. Given the slew of issues already facing the country, it is no surprise that this move was the straw that broke the camel's back for many Lebanese, already disenfranchised by government corruption and bureaucracy. For the first time, the country's multiple religious groups and ethnic groups, a long dividing factor for the country, was unified under the Lebanese flag. Then comes COVID-19, and not only does the country face lockdown, but measures in place that have led to greater economic and social disparity that can be very much anticipated. With the majority of the population working informally and Lebanon hosting vast amounts of both Syrian and Palestinian refugees, it renders the situation of vulnerable communities within the country particularly dire. Joining me to discuss Lebanon, the crisis, COVID-19, and the plight of the vulnerable, I am joined by Halim Shebabia and Christophe Martin. Halim is the Interim Executive Director at the Arab Association of Constitutional Law. He was formerly the Middle East and North Africa Director at Crisis Action and has been working since 2006 on humanitarian and political affairs for a number of local and international organizations. He has also taught on a part-time basis in the School of Arts and Sciences at the Lebanese American University, and his articles and media commentary have appeared in media outlets including Al Jazeera English, BBC World Service, and France 24. Christophe Martin is the head of delegation at the international community of the Red Cross in Lebanon. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gesu. Thanks thanks for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, a bit of warning as well to the guests. I happen to still be in lockdown in Casablanca and not in our traditional London studio. So if you hear the occasional call for prayer or background noise in the background, I do apologize. I just hope it evokes some other uh, ambiance for our listeners. But as we traditionally do, let's start a bit with background over what has been going on in Lebanon since late 2019. And Halim, I'd like to really hear it from you. To make it quite clear for our audience, what makes these protests particularly different? And why are they so important? Um, well, the protests that uh, started in October, on October 17, 2019, and that you refer to uh, the WhatsApp tax, that was really the spark 
but it was really about many different things. And uh, the reason we're still talking about it now is that uh, it was really a historic uh, protest or series of protests. And, you know, we can call it a revolutionary movement, uh, an uprising, uh, whatever we call it. It was really something that uh, uh, was really that put the country at a standstill. Um, the, com- the complete there was a shutdown of the country. Roads were blocked by protesters and it led to the resignation of the previous uh, prime minister of Lebanon, uh, Mr. Saad uh, Hariri. So in, in essence, around 12 days after the October 17 uh, uh, protests, uh, the government resigned. So you could say that that was a success, a quick success, so to speak. But herein lies the problem and the complexity of uh, Lebanese politics and Lebanese society. It was not enough for the government to resign because the Lebanese system works along in a type of what is called to or referred to as consociational democracy. And what it has come to mean in practice was is that all the different communities in Lebanon have to be in one way or another represented in the government. Uh, and this is owing to the Lebanese constitution that speaks about, you know, any power that uh, contradicts the power, the coexistence among the different religions is illegitimate. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether this really means in practice that every government should include everybody. But this is how the current political elite have uh, decided to uh, conduct affairs. And it's actually convenient for them because you have five or six uh, main leaders, we call them Zohama, Zaim in Lebanon, each claiming to represent the best interests of their sect. So whether it is Christian or Muslim, but even within the Christian and the Muslim sect, so you have the uh, Shia, the Sunni, the Maronites, the Orthodox, uh, then you have some of the minorities. So uh, the re- one of the reasons that these protests, despite having led to the resignation of uh, a government, ultimately did not uh, was not able to topple the system or to topple the regime, similar to what we saw, for example, let's say in Tunis or in Egypt, where it was one figure, a president, for example, who held uh, most of the power and was, uh, was forced to step down. In Lebanon, that government resigned. And today we have a new government of technocrats, as it is called, uh, and that is trying to claim legitimacy by saying that it has heard the demands of the people on the streets, and it comes uh, in that spirit. However, uh, everybody knows that this government would not have been able to uh, be elected to get the confidence of the parliament had the major political parties um, adopted it. And the only difference this time is that with Mr. Saad al-Hariri, you had more political parties represented from all different sides. Now it's mainly uh, the free patriotic movement of the Lebanese president with Hezbollah and Amal and Frangiyi. And so a lot of the political parties that are usually uh, more aligned with the Syrian and the Iranian axis versus uh, and not aligned to the Saudi Arabian and the American axis, so to speak, if if I want to oversimplify it. So uh, this is in terms of background of where we are today with the government. And the problem with this government, and this is the reason why even just a few days ago on Saturday, June 6th, we had more protests, uh, despite them being slightly more controversial and different than the October 17th. It's because in many ways, uh, nothing has changed in terms of the political system. All the major political leaders are still there, despite having had huge protests, despite the, politi- uh, the economy having crashed. 
the Lebanese lira having uh, been devalued, you know, to a really large, uh, the one dollar used to be 1,500 Lebanese liras. Now, as we speak, it's around 4,000 Lebanese liras. This has had a huge impact on uh, prices, on, you know, you, we've had studies about how prices, how, about the hyperinflation, the difference in prices from one year ago to today, some products such as sugar even reaching 90% increase, others reaching 50% increase in a country that was already super expensive and in a country where the state does not provide the services uh, as it's usually uh, expected to do. So uh, the civil war ended in 1990, we're in 2020, 30 years later, we still don't have 24-7 Electricity. Just to name one example, we want we have one of the most expensive uh, telecommunications uh, industries, where for our phones we pay one of the highest bills, you know, in the in the region and uh, in the world, comparative to our population and our GDP. So it's really so much to talk about when we want to uh, speak about what is wrong. But at this point, it can be uh, summarized in two things. On the economic level, we have a crisis. We have a very very bad situation with the levels of poverty increasing to historic levels and the levels of unemployment rising as well and the hyperinflation. And we're really reaching a point where the, a lot of the generations that have witnessed the civil war say, say this is completely different. This is something we haven't dealt with before when it comes to the economy. And the second major crisis we're dealing with is political. Uh, we have a, a big political crisis in the sense that our, the ruling elite that has ruled Lebanon from 1990 after the civil war has been corrupt, has been incompetent, and has not been able to deliver anything, reaching, uh, and, uh, reaching us to this state where we are in a huge national debt, where the banking sector has you know, almost collapsed, and where the Lebanese people have lost a lot of their deposits that are stuck in the bank because the banks... There's, uh, there's a shortage of U.S. dollars and they cannot uh, get their money back or they can only get their money uh, with a devaluation, thus making them lose 50 to 60 to 70 percent of their pension, of their salary, of their savings. So that political crisis uh, really has one solution if we really want to speak logically. Usually when you have a political elite that has ruled for 30 years and been unable to, you know, to produce, usually it steps aside and a new... Uh, political uh, figures come and take its place. The problem in Lebanon is those same political elite, in the name of defending their confessions or their religions or their minorities, remain in power and threaten to ignite, obviously not directly, but uh, indirectly, a civil war or civil unrest should anyone threaten their throne, so to speak. Well, it's interesting you put it that way, and even listening it from you. I mean, I I have I have been fortunate to go to Lebanon quite frequently, and I have to really highlight as well too to the audience when you've mentioned how Lebanon is so expensive. I think the most mm -hmm. expensive coffee I've ever had in the in the world <laughs> was Lebanon, fifteen dollars at Beirut International Airport, and I and I'll never forget that. Uh, and and just as you've indicated, it is just a laundry list and more of of issues mm -hmm. that happen and. 
particularly with the banking crisis um, and and the and the un- inability to withdraw, that brings to my attention in regards to what the Lebanese economy can even look like because you know mm-hmm. it's taken to effect COVID nineteen lockdowns and the infections that are rising, and of course not just the shutdown of protests, uh, however that has been emerging again, mm-hmm. but also of the economy in general and particularly those in the informal economy. I mean, what impact is this going to have on the Lebanese economy? And and the real question is, is it even going to survive post COVID nineteen? And I think that's the million-dollar mm-hmm. question. Yeah. I mean, I think that's all, yeah, as you said, it's a million-dollar question. It's the question that currently uh, the Lebanese people are waiting for the government to give them an answer to that. Now, the government has put forward an, a rescue plan, an economic rescue plan, um, which is quite, it's quite comprehensive in explaining what the situation is, but it remains lacking in the sense that it doesn't have the buy-in from various uh, sectors in uh, Lebanese society. And, you know, for, uh, I'm not an economist, so I won't go into super detail, but as a uh, summary, um, the Lebanese economy re- used to rely on a lot of influx of, uh, of money from expatriates, from uh, Arab investors, from foreign investors who used to come to Lebanon, whether it was for the banking secrecy, whether it was just for the uh, good weather, good food. Uh, so the tourism industry was, uh, and the services industry was something that the Lebanese economy was built upon with very little resources and uh, attention paid to, uh, the, uh, to industrial uh, services, such as to, uh, to agriculture, to the industry. So already now we are hearing something new when we are talking about the Lebanese economy in two ways. The first thing is that for the first time, perhaps the people are talking more about the economy in the public square, on TV, um, in conversations, rather than just speaking about politics. Because uh, I think regardless of what the political elite are trying to do, there is a realization that these petty politics has just got us to the state of uh, unemployment and poverty that we have reached and the state of collapse of the economy. So people are more interested and invested in hearing new voices about how the economy can be built in a better way. Uh, already we're sp- uh, speaking, uh, seeing um, or hearing experts uh, speak about how we can uh, develop the agriculture sector, how Lebanon can, where Lebanon can compete, uh, how can we encourage small businesses, how can we encourage um, and support uh, the farming industry. So there's a lot uh, of discussion going on, but nothing concrete at the moment in terms of where uh, where we could be headed in two or three years. Because really the answer, and that's why I think in your question you already hinted that it's a million-dollar question, because we can still go in two ways. Uh, five years from now, we could really be headed the Venezuela path, where we're really in a humanitarian disaster in Lebanon, or five years from now, we could be in a slightly better place with a restructured banking sector, restructured economy, uh, with more emphasis paid on, uh, you know, rather than just making easy profits by, you know, putting one's money in the bank to get uh, high interest, we're really going back to an economy that's reliant on uh, agriculture, perhaps, on, on Lebanese industry. Uh, a lot of the Lebanese people who immigrate to uh, and work outside, given the whole COVID-19 and the other and the global recession, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, global incoming uh, potential recession. Uh, we don't know it's there yet, but uh, th- there might be even fewer opportunities for Lebanese people to go outside. So these might create 
uh, new opportunities for Lebanese youth who really are in a situation where, and this was their main cry in October, the October Revolution or the October Uprising, is that something needs to uh, be done to change how we have been doing things. And currently, this is really the uh, state of affairs. Obviously, the key thing now is um, Lebanon has asked for support from the IMF and there are ongoing uh, discussions and negotiations. Uh, the, the government and the banks and the, and the, and the central bank are still trying to um, put, put forth a unified set of numbers about the, the real losses uh, for, uh, of the Lebanese state, of banks, etc. So we're really in a very uh, vague and unclear uh, situation. But what is quite clear is that the Lebanese people... Uh, are starting to feel and have started to feel the real effects of what an economic collapse means just by going to the grocery shop, just by, uh, you know, every day we hear about people who are losing their jobs, people who uh, had a job and now are being paid uh, half their salary on an already devalued uh, Lebanese lira. So uh, the potential for a social um, unrest is there, just as we have seen. So if the October 17 revolution was against the uh, or triggered by a WhatsApp tax, but also by wider socioeconomic and political reasons, now we are talking about a revolution of hunger that might take uh, place, given that uh, literally people will be hungry and that revolution will look very different than what we have seen in October. So there is still a chance for this government or another government to come and try to uh, propose a solution. The problem again, uh, ultimately is that these same people who got us, these same political elite who got us to where we are today are still in power. So it's really hard to imagine them coming up with a solution. Uh, so hence lies the quandary, basically. We're asking the very same political elite who led us to uh, bankruptcy to get us out of it. And I'm not sure in the private sector whether that's what they would do. So I think there's a need for more pressure from the people for more accountability in the government, more accountability uh, for uh, the independence of the judiciary, which is, it was a key demand of the October 17 uh, uh, popular uprising. So again, this is uh, this is where we are at uh, from from where I see it. Precisely, and I th and what you've indicated is it's important for the audience also to understand that mm -hmm. this crisis in Lebanon, and thus our reason for wanting to highlight this episode, is actually very dangerous because when you have a hunger revolution, that's when things mm -hmm. can go very scary. And and I mm -hmm. and I appreciate the mention of Venezuela because that that's particularly what it what what it could go towards. But then again, you, mm -hmm. you know, it, it it one does not know when it comes to to Lebanon. Let's look at the refugee numbers now and if we really take this now to you Christophe now according to the UNHCR there are about 1.5 million refugee populations alone from Syria and not taking into consideration already the existing Palestinian refugees that have been present since the creation of the state of Israel um, so in addition to the Lebanese vulnerable communities which are numerous in the north in cities such as Tripoli and also within the Bekaa Valley um, bordering Syria they are definitely taking a brunt from the shutdown economically that have been imposed by COVID-19. So Christoph, looking at it, asking you this question, how bad is it from your perspective that the shutdown is happening on these communities, given already the economic crisis having, and now this? 
Well, thank you very much um, for inviting me and thank you for the for the question. I think we have to really put that in perspective and I would not uh, enter the, the, the conversation on the shutdown itself and the COVID momentum that we are in at this moment without putting that in perspective and just re- re- remembering uh, that we're coming from a very long-standing economic stroke financial uh, crisis that the country has been going through. And I would be talking about a triple impact. The first impact is the one that has hit the country ever since uh, the conflict in Syria started with a a huge population that has arrived in the country and has put an enormous pressure on the uh, of Lebanon. It's in first impact. The double impact is this looming economic financial crisis that at the the time of talking is deteriorating day by day. And we can go in details on that one. And then of that, on on the top of that came, of course, the COVID-19, which has put an additional strain on uh, the poorest of the poor. Now, if you combine those three factors, and more specifically, the second and the third, you are now talking about a global population in the country of 6 million when you add the Lebanese and the different uh, refugee uh, communities that are getting poorer by the day, more vulnerable by the day. And uh, this is an alarming trend that we are observing, which is a combination of uh, the devaluation of uh, the Lebanese pound, the skyrocketing of uh, the prices, the lack of access uh, to uh, liquidity, uh, the lack of access to uh, so, uh, services such as, as health because of the lack of liquidity or the, ma- the lack of means. And we are seeing now, even I would say what we used to qualify as a middle upper uh, class in Lebanon that is as well starting to get uh, serious pressure on their capacity to cope with uh, the uh, basic services that are required uh, from health to education uh, to uh, to food for the for the people that are even below uh, that uh, that that uh, that that class and it is true that the absolute uh, number um, rather excuse me the uh, the number of absolute uh, poverty line is is being uh, by the day uh, uh, going higher and higher with people that are struggling uh, to make ends meet, uh, basically to have food on the table uh, for many people uh, by the day. So the COVID-19 has been, I must say and confess, has been quite well, if not clearly well managed by uh, the authorities here in Lebanon. There have been massive efforts that have been undertaken by the the state, uh, the Minister of Health. The ICRC has been clearly part of uh, the response with our support to the biggest public hospital that managed to turn itself into a COVID uh, reception centre for testing and for treatment. Uh, But at large, the figures still remain quite low, uh, be it a number of cases or number of deaths in comparison to other uh, countries in the world. But we are still with the big question of uh, with the easing of uh, the, 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 the measures that have been taken with, as we know now, commercial flights that have restarted uh, as of yesterday uh, with a question of what will be the potential first ever big or second wave that will hit the country. Now, the COVID-19, of course, has put an additional burden on the poorest of the poor. And there again, I think it's important to, 
to really address the issue from a health perspective when considering the overall population that today is in Lebanon. And I must confess that that has been very clearly the position of the government of Lebanon, not wanting to segregate or discriminate between populations. And we've seen that when, for instance, there were cases uh, of of positive of positive pop- populations either in the refugee camps in the Beka uh, as well as in El Helwe, there has been a massive mobilisation on the side of uh, of the of the Ministry of Health with the support of WHO and the Rafikariri University Hospital, supported by the ICRC and the Lebanese Red Cross, to reach out as quickly as possible to make sure that these populations uh, who are at higher risk of contaminating a high population would be taken care of. So. I I would say all in all, COVID-19 is just an additional, clearly a big one, but additional, I would say, layer of complexity that puts an additional burden on the poorest populations here in Lebanon. Precisely. It's adding an additional layer of complexity, as you indicated. And and as you were highlighting, it's actually exacerbating the situation for the middle classes within the country. Uh, But in that aspect, is it in a way increasing the scope then of, let's say, for example, the work of the ICRC in this aspect, where there's going to be a greater portion of vulnerable communities to respond to in that aspect, um, where the state is having a difficulty to respond? Or is it somehow in a way... Uh, for all those actors that are engaged with the vulnerable communities within the country? Are they finding themselves as in, well, we knew this would happen and you were pretty much prepped? No, let's be clear. Nobody knew that it would happen. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's a daily struggle before COVID uh, to, to try to respond as, 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 as massively as possible to the, to the, to the needs in, in, in the country. Um, and the ICRC has been able in quite a fast uh, in a quite a fast reaction to basically adapt uh, its its reaction its 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 response sorry uh, more cl- clearly linked to the COVID consequences that were hitting mainly uh, the populations uh, in some of the uh, in some of the poorest areas and, and and increasing the capacity of the ICRC to support even more vulnerable populations uh, that were that were uh, uh, that were uh, at the edge of, of of not being able to 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 be supported health wise we were as well increasing massively and we have increase massively our support to the prisons because that is always a matter of concern for the ICRC uh, considering the fact that we're talking about a very vulnerable population that is not necessarily taken care of by many actors and it is a specific field of expertise so the ICRC was able to very quickly uh, inject in uh, uh, from preventive measures to structural uh, support to the to the main uh, the main uh, prison here Rumier where we were able to build up a um, isolation center and, and, and a pressurized rooms to take care of potential uh, potential uh, cases and all in all I think it's it's been part of these responses that have still kept uh, the figures uh, uh, quite low now the other concern that the ICRC had when we supported the Rafikariri hospital to move in to as well a COVID, uh, a COVID response was to make sure that it would not be the entire hospital that would become a COVID center and leave aside uh, what the hospital was meant for, basically providing medical care and access to the most vulnerable populations. The ICRC has by experience seen, for instance, in countries of Western Africa during Ebola crisis, that more people uh, 
have died because of lack of access to medical care than because of the pandemic itself. So there the ICRC with the Rafikari replayed as well a critical role in making sure that there was still uh, the needed support to the hospital for the uh, vulnerable populations uh, from refugees to the most destitute uh, Lebanese. Now, having said that, uh, it's, it's, it's still, I would say, uh, bits and pieces that we are trying to do. And again, today, our concern goes what happens in a country if we enter into a new phase in terms of number of cases? How will we deal with that and how will the health system cope uh, and will the health system be overwhelmed in in terms of number of cases that will have to be uh, treated but more worrying again is and I'm insisting it's today the economic stroke financial crisis that is bringing by the day an additional pressure on the uh, on, on the majority of the population and, and and putting an additional strain on the poorest communities be they refugees or Lebanese. Precisely. And that's the main, uh, one can say, the main crux out of all this. It is that is the Lebanese economy, which, as we've seen in the report, as Halim has indicated, is, I think to say it's depressing is, is to put it quite lightly. It's absolutely dire when one takes into consideration the, the, the way the lira has dropped, the, the way it has been really affecting many communities, the, the general population of Lebanon in that aspect. Now, in, in general... With the Global Podcast, we believe that there's a power for aid organizations, NGOs, and businesses with a sustainable solution to be able to provide actual solutions towards impact in countries countries and areas where there's vulnerability. So taking consideration to the Lebanese context, which is complex as always, um, and the most traditional Lebanese style, I mean, if one were to think about it, what are the best sustainable solutions for businesses and aid agencies to provide either relief of impact investment or development to Lebanon, because clearly there is a dire need, uh, there's an absence within the government level, there's an overwhelming aspect within agencies that are present within the country because one is anticipating a second wave of COVID and and one doesn't know how, how much longer the Lebanese economy can last, especially with the recent implementation of the Caesar Act by the United States, which is having an implication on Lebanon as well. So what are the particular solutions that maybe businesses can bring to be able to provide a relief or even aid organizations can to be able to serve those communities? Let me be quite blunt and and, and undiplomatic. I mean, today, the magnitude of the crisis that Lebanon is going through requires a government of Lebanon to live to a minimal of its responsibilities. And everybody in this country is saying this. We, the humanitarians, will not be the one who brings solutions to the magnitude of the, of the crisis and the problems that the populations are facing. We can do some investments, and what we are doing, we will still be extremely little, not to say marginal, players in the global response that requires the government of Lebanon to live up to its responsibilities. And what the international community is saying here is that today in the IMF negotiations that are taking place, everybody wants to see the government of Lebanon providing some minimal guarantees 
that can build up a trustful relation for the international community to step in massively or at least to step in in terms of structural support to the country. As long as those minimal reforms, good gestures, indications that the government of Lebanon is ready to listen to what the international community is demanding, there will be nothing else than us, the humanitarians, serving as the ones who kind of keep the systems, the numerous systems afloat. And this is what today the ICRC is doing. When we, for instance, work and support the water establishments, be it in the north, uh, in Tyr, or be it in the, in the north in Tripoli, sorry, or be it in the south in Tyr, it's basically because the water establishments are not receiving, and it's very basic, fuel to run the generators, chemicals to render the water drinkable or at least uh, of, of good quality to be distributed. So with less than a million dollars, the ICRC has been investing in bringing water to approximately 1.5 million people in the north and in the south of the country. And again, this is across uh, across populations, so there's no specificities on, on targeting one population or the other. And these are some of the projects that be it us, be it the UN system, uh, be it other organizations are doing to keep the different systems afloat and hence by keeping the systems afloat, keeping the populations afloat. But we are by no way and by no means responding to the structural, systemic, institutional realities of the country that will require a minimal uh, a minimal uh, responsibility on the sides of the, of the of the authorities. Otherwise, we'll be going nowhere than just fixing uh, by the day some of the problems and not responding to the the root causes of of the problems here in Lebanon. The key issue is the Lebanese government. They're simply not responding. They're not holding themselves accountable in regards to serving the populations. There's too many uh, gaps, as one has seen, for example, in the past with with, with, the, with the garbage, with the common issue of the electricity that's going on, etc. Etc. I mean, it's clear that the current trajectory of the Lebanese government is not sustainable in the way it's managing the affairs of the country in that aspect. I mean, f from your point of view and how you see it, if Lebanon does not ship up in that aspect, what is the trajectory? I mean, of course, that seems to be quite obvious that it is going to be bleak. But from hearing it from you, what, it, what could be the trajectory on that aspect and uh, particularly on the vulnerable populations in the country? Well, that, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> I must confess that this is my daily reflection with my teams uh, on, on basically how far down the drain can the situation go and what could be the consequences from a humanitarian perspective. Um, I am still on the working assumption that the country will still for, but how many months, I don't know, go through the situation that we are living, which I now have qualified just to have an acronym that stays clearly in my mind as LLLV, low levels of local violence. What we have seen over the, the last weeks, over the last months, with then the big question, will it remain localized? Will it remain low? When I say low, you know, a uh, few tires burnt, maybe some scuffles around here. But I mean, basically, we're talking about not a situation that deteriorates into a situation of, 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 civil, of civil war, which I don't believe in at all. But how long can we still observe the situation degrading by itself with the consequences 
consequences that you rightly highlight in terms of impact on on the populations and i'm i'm of of, of the opinion at this stage that that the situation will con- will continue to degrade uh by the day that it will be hitting more and more uh, on the vulnerable populations uh, and that this could this might or this could lead maybe not immediately but in a longer term to a situation that could get out of control if suddenly uh, we have more and more hungry people in the street uh, we have more and more people that will be as well uh, instrumentalized by their political uh, affiliates and their political leaders and uh, we know how this can go in a country uh, that has gone through a numerous episodes of conflict violence over the last uh, over the last uh, 50 years so i'm really concerned that today uh, everybody uh, still believes that there is this kind of lebanese miracle that will enable and allow the country to get uh, i don't know uh, saved or supported by uh, the usual international donors and and there will be some bailouts that will be that will be that will that will guarantee the sustainability of the equilibrium here in Lebanon and I must confess that is my personal point of view I believe that this paradigm is more and more questioned and is not sustainable so the question more concretely is uh, to answer to answer your 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 valid uh, your valid point is that this will this will continue to put additional pressure uh, on 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 the populations and to be honest with you after three years I don't know to what extent and to what uh, level of impact this could lead uh, the communities like to be uh, to be in in the coming weeks and months but it could be quite dramatic and quite dramatic indeed and that will be continuing to play itself within the news as we continue to look but it is it has been very engaging to hear you speak Christoph, and also to Halim so I thank you both for coming onto the global podcast I mean it is quite bleak for the future of Lebanon um, but you know, one one must in a way stay optimistic but in this sense it seems that it's going to be quite dark before there's any proper dawn with Lebanon given the current situation but thank you both to Colleen and to Christophe for joining us on the Global Podcast it has been my pleasure and thank you very much for inviting me